0: We come now to continue this little mini-series on why we believe as Christians in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to say that this, this sermon, and to an extent last sermon, this sermon is, is going to be different than the usual kind of sermon. And I, I've told my family often this week, I, I just I pray that God brings this to us to increase our joy in the faith we have in a risen Savior. It's particularly, you know, we've, we're coming here to Resurrection Sunday very soon, and so um, I, it's almost like I keep putting off the resurrection itself in John until we get there. We'll, we'll see when we arrive at that finally. But this morning, we're going to look at something a little different. In in many churches today, and denominations, especially mainline denominations, denominations, um, the resurrection of jesus is purely a spiritual reality so it's a spiritual reality for spiritual people it's a theological reality for people who are into theology in other words what they mean by that is the resurrection of jesus is not actually did not actually physically bodily rise from the dead on the third day. And this is something interesting. You can talk to Christians, not, not, I'm not naming names, I mean many Christians this is not, but you can talk to professing Christians who will talk all day long about the resurrection of Jesus. But they don't mean by it what you mean or what you think they mean. It's this, it's this spiritual thing that happened. So the gospel accounts, you know, you might ask them, well what do you do with the gospels? right? Which is a fair question. The gospel accounts of the resurrection, they would say, are only communicating in in mythic historical language. Okay? Mythic historical language. The true spiritual realities of Christ's victory over sin and how Christ had a victory over suffering and how Christ has attained for you after you die a spiritual life. In the presence of God. The resurrection, therefore, is an invented story. Not that they were being dishonest. They expected we would all know they didn't actually mean a bodily resurrection. So the resurrection is an invented story that communicates something very true. You see what they're saying? So it's a great story. It's not not actually literally true, but it communicates something. That's very true. And that is that Christ has won a victory over our sin and achieved for us a spiritual life after death. Now, why are these churches so intent on denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus? Well, one thing is because it's embarrassing to them because, uh, like, do we really believe in miracles and all of that? Um, But there's another reason. Another reason is then... You don't have to be embarrassed of all the contradictions. We talked last week about contradictions in the Bible, especially between the Gospels. So now, see, they don't have to defend the very old-fashioned idea that the Bible is true in all of its parts, without error, without any fallacy ever, no, nothing that's untrue. So they don't have to defend that anymore because The history that's being written isn't literal history. It was created by the early church to kind of encapsulate its faith. Here we have this faith. How do we encapsulate and communicate that faith through this story? Now you might say, why are we even talking about this? I don't care about this. Right? Well, there's a couple of reasons that I'm doing this, so bear with me. The world says, if you go out in the world, what's the world going to tell you? The world's going to tell you, well, when the gospel writers were writing this, they had a, an agenda. And whenever someone writes with an agenda, therefore, you can't trust their history. Because when you write with an agenda, you're going to skew things. You're going to mess things up. Your agenda is going to get in the way. So you can't trust their history. Neither can you, therefore, trust their theology. So you... You discard the Bible. What does the church say? The church. The church will tell you, and this is where you need to be aware of these things, they might tell you that, well, the gospel writers never intended their history to be trusted.
1: Therefore, we can trust their theology. Now that sounds backwards to us, as it should, because here's the thing for us. It's the real history
0: from which we get our real theology, right? It's what happened that leads to our spiritual faith. We cannot divorce the two things. And so it should be clear to us, who have had our minds and our hearts opened to understand the scriptures, that the churches who are reading the Gospels in this way are reading them all wrong. They're not reading them according to obviously what the gospel writers intended or in the light of what the whole Bible teaches about creation, about our fall as sinful human beings, about God's holiness, about his coming wrath and judgment and what that means for us and our need for salvation and for the resurrection. So when we, without, in your, I think this is in your handout, without a real and literal, yes, in your handout, history, the spiritual teachings that are supposedly being communicated via this mythic language, have no real existence. They have no reason for being. Brothers and sisters, we are of all men most miserable if we don't have a history that we look back to that really happened. And I just want us to rejoice in that this morning, that these are not just spiritual ideas. These are things that are rooted in historical events. So while we reject the teachings, now here's why I come to this. Because you're like, yeah, we all know this, right? But while we reject the teachings of these apostate
1: churches as heretical, at the same time, we may not always appreciate the extent to which our faith is dependent on the physical evidence. Now, I'm going to clarify that in a minute. And the testimony of those who
0: witnessed history happening. Right? We weren't there when this history happened. So what do we depend upon? The testimony of those who were there when it happened. The Christian faith... Is rooted in a record of historically verifiable events that has unfolded over time. We were reading in our family in Galatians last night where where Paul talks about in the fullness of time, and we were talking about that phrase and what that means and how and how the fullness of time means not simply that the right date on the calendar came but that all of history had been preparing for that date on the calendar. That's the nature of the Christian faith. It's a whole history.
1: And so it should be significant to us. Um, Well, yes, I'll,
0: I'll move on. It should be significant to us that in the Gospels and in the Bible, there is, think about this, there is no other single historical event that is more carefully and thoroughly documented by physical evidence and eyewitness testimony than what event do you think? The resurrection. Not a single other event. And so here's one of my main points this morning. We'll come back to it at the end. It'll be on the screen. Saving faith is only possible when we understand the must, and we'll stop here on the screen for right now, when we understand the must of the resurrection.
1: Okay, we talked about that last week. If you have a saving faith, if you truly believe, it's because you have, under, you have
0: come to understand why the Messiah had to rise from the dead. It had to be. You've understood that. The Old Testament scriptures foretold it. They said the reason this must happen is because of our sin, because of wrath, because of the whole nature of the salvation that we need. So you understand that. However, next slide, this saving faith always presupposes that there is
1: evidence to believe that the resurrection which must happen has happened. This is really important to get. I do not base my saving faith
0: on enough evidence, right? No, I base my saving faith on the word that God has pronounced in his scriptures, right? At the same time, in order to believe that the resurrection that God said must happen has happened, there must be eyewitness testimony. There must be evidence. There must be physical evidence. That this has happened. This is why God has given us not just one gospel, not just two, not just three. Four gospels. How often is it easy for us to look at the four gospels and think, well, John is different enough. I think we could have done with two. Right? Pick one of the other three and give me John, and we've got enough. Otherwise, you've got repetition over and over again.
1: But in fact. There's this beautiful fourfold witness to the fact that the tomb was empty on that first Resurrection Sunday. When we minimize the fact that we depend
0: on historical evidence, we can lose sight of the fact that it actually historically happened. So even as, even as conservative Christians who believe Jesus rose bodily from the dead, sometimes we give a lot of lip service to that and we forget just how real that is and how joyful that that causes us to be. This is why I've taken last week and this week to focus on the historical record of the resurrection as it's come down to us in the Gospels. And this, again, is a very different approach than I'm usually taking I'm trusting it's worth it and going to be edifying and strengthening to your faith. Brothers and sisters, we have a lot of young people who are growing up in the church. And it can happen, it happens in our church. Where at some level, we're not grounded in the faith. And that's not always the reason I'm not making, I'm just saying that at a, at a, we have an, an epidemic, you could say. Uh, of, of young people growing up, not being grounded in the faith, then hearing these ideas, and then being drawn, drawn away. And so I, I pray that not only will this strengthen the faith of those who might be challenged, but it will strengthen the faith of those of us who already wholeheartedly believe. This is why we're doing this. And I, I want us to, who have, I want us who have already believed to comprehend and I'll use this phrase here again, the sheer historical facticity
1: of the resurrection. And in comprehending this, to be all the more filled with hope. Hope. That's what this is about. And the secondary result of this, as I just said, is that
0: we'll be better equipped to confront, on the one hand, the skepticism and even the mockery of an unbelieving world and on the other hand, the false doctrine of an unbelieving church. You can deal with both. So we're going to look briefly at two things. Uh, and then, actually, we're going, to, we're going to look at two more tensions or apparent contradictions between John and Luke. And see how the differences show us what John and Luke were thinking, as well as how they testify to the truth of the historical record. And after that, after we look at those two differences, what what I'm going to do, and I'm excited about this, is we're going to compile all the historical evidence from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and start before sunrise on Resurrection Sunday and move through the day until sundown on Resurrection Sunday and see what happened on that day when our Lord had first risen. So last week, uh, we saw how Peter and John were both running. Okay. They're both running to the tomb because Mary Magdalene had come to them and said, the stone's taken away and they've taken his body out of the tomb and we don't know what they did with him. John then concludes, so the disciples, plural, Peter and John, went away
1: again to where they were staying. Now when we read in Luke, Luke tells us that Peter went to the tomb.
0: So we read in Luke 24. But Peter stood up and ran to the tomb, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away by himself to his own place where he was staying. The disciples aren't all hanging out together still. They're depressed, they're all off-separated, scattered, as Jesus said, wondering at what had happened. So Luke tells us only that Peter went to the tomb. John, of course, Luke does not tell us that only Peter went to the tomb, right? Now I want to ask you, did Luke know that John went to the tomb along with Peter? Did Luke know that, yeah, John was there too? Well, later, when Luke tells us about how Jesus appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he records what the disciples said to Jesus. They still didn't recognize Jesus. This is what they said to Jesus. But also, some women among us astounded us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. And not finding his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then what they, what, look what they say. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women
1: also said. So did Luke know that it wasn't just Peter who went? Yeah, Luke knew. He knew John was with him. So here's the question we ask. Why? Why doesn't Peter tell us that John was with Peter? For the historian today who says you need to get all the facts and only the facts, that's a problem. But brothers and sisters, they had an agenda, right? Luke had
0: an agenda. And so the simple answer of why Luke doesn't tell us John was there is because Luke is
1: telling whose story? He's telling Peter's story. That's Luke's agenda. So you think about it. Peter's on his way to the tomb. How do you think Peter feels compared to John? Now, they're both grieving. They're both mourning. They're both
0: despairing, probably. But Peter has only just a couple of
1: nights ago denied three times that he knew who Jesus was. Peter's journey to the tomb, then, we know is filled with a weight of guilt and remorse that John does not carry. It's Peter who's betrayed Jesus. Now, in John's gospel,
0: why does he tell us that he was there with Peter? Because it's his story, and he's giving us his own eyewitness testimony. That's why. When Luke tells us Only about Peter running to the tomb. It's because he's continuing Peter's story, not John's story. So we see now, in Luke, Peter. In our mind's eye, we're undistracted by John. We don't need to think about John running with him. John's irrelevant right now. We see in our mind's eye, Peter, running to the tomb, When he sees the linen wrappings, this Peter who just denied Jesus three times, he goes away and Luke emphasizes by himself. You see Peter in his hopelessness, in his, what have I done? Wondering at what had happened. As it turns out, Luke is also the only gospel writer who tells us this. On the day of
1: his resurrection, Before he appeared to the rest of the disciples, Jesus appeared to Peter. Luke is the only one who tells us that.
0: When the two disciples, who had been on the road to Emmaus, you remember that story maybe, they're coming back to Jerusalem because they've seen Jesus, and they're met, when they get back to Jerusalem, they're met with this news from the eleven and those who are with them. They say this, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon Peter. Now, I don't know about you, but when I got to that part, I was like, wait a minute, where did this happen? Right? Because you go back in Luke and I start, you know, you start looking back in Luke and nowhere do we hear anything about Jesus appearing to Peter. And
1: all of a sudden it's happened. Right? Nowhere else in the Bible. Are we given any hint as to when
0: or where this happened or what Jesus might have said to Peter? Don't you just, there's, sometimes in our curiosity, we want to go back and we're like, tell us about it, right? What happened? Look, Peter just denied Jesus three times and here Jesus appears to Peter on the day of his resurrection. What did he say?
1: What, what did Peter say? But yet we hardly even hear it happened. After the fact, all of a sudden, oh, it happened.
0: And so on the one hand, brothers and sisters, our curiosity needs some checks, doesn't it? Because a veil is drawn over this meeting between Peter and Jesus on the day of his resurrection. I, I, apparently, I'm wondering, Peter himself was unwilling to speak of the things Jesus said to him. So then why does Luke bother to include the detail if you're not going to tell us what was said? Because every single other resurrection appearance in the Bible, we hear of something that was said. This is the only one we hear of nothing. So if we're not going to hear any details, why bother
1: to tell us it happened? Can any of you guess why Luke puts it here? This is, this is Luke's way of giving evidence to the full restoration of Peter
0: as an apostle of Jesus Christ after his denial of Jesus. We're going to come to this later,
1: brothers and sisters, but oh, how, what hope there is for us in this. What hope there is. Here you have a
0: disciple of Jesus, one who walked with Jesus for three years, who has just failed so
1: miserably, so miserably, I mean, are there words for it? And yet after his resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter before all the rest of the eleven and appears to him. I don't care. I don't need to know what he said. All I need to know is he did. And there then is hope for
0: us in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our
1: Sin, which so often assails us and drags us down, that God is faithful when we are not.
0: And he comes after us. And in fact, just as Jesus prayed for Peter,
1: Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for us. That God would keep us. In John's Gospel, where are we going to see this restoration of Peter? We're going to see
0: it when Jesus comes to the disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And three times he will commission Peter, the failure, right? By human definitions, he will commission Peter, the failure, tend
1: my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. In Mark, Mark does not tell that story, but he does give us a glimpse of
0: the coming restoration of Peter when he alone, of all four Gospels, Mark's the only one who does this, he tells us how the angel said to the women at the tomb,
1: but go, tell his disciples, and Peter, the angel, tell his disciples, and who especially needs to hear this news? Peter, You know, we would have been like, yeah, Peter's the one who doesn't need to hear the news.
0: But right? he messed up. He's the failure. And yet the angel sends the news to all 11. And he's not, he's, not like, he's not like the Roman Catholic kind of a primacy of Peter. Far from it here, right? This is the issue of where Peter was the ultimate failure. And so he especially needs to have this news
1: brought to him. He is risen. In Luke, alone of all four Gospels.
0: So John tells us the restoration of Peter with the, do you love me? Mark tells us by recording how the angel specifically said and tell Peter. And how does Luke show us the restoration of Peter? He alone tells us that there was a special resurrection of Jesus made to Peter, alone of the 11 disciples. Does that help you to understand Luke's exclusive focus on Peter as he ran to the tomb that resurrection Sunday? And then as he went away by himself, wondering, wondering at what had happened. And so we see again how the different parts of the history are all independently related by each of the different gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They might look so much of the same, but they have so many differences that when you piece it together, you see the whole picture of God's redemptive plan coming to pass. And so we see how each of these different parts of the history
1: reinforces and supports all the others, bearing witness in this way to the sheer historical facticity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You know, in courts of law,
0: what is the the criteria by which you convict someone? What's the only
1: way you can convict someone? Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. What I want us to see
0: is that in the gospels, as we have them today, there is indeed
1: proof beyond all possible Reasonable doubt that what must happen has happened. And it's upon that reality that we
0: build and live our lives today, from day to day, every day. It gives us hope. It gives us peace. It is the assurance in, in troubled times, in times of upheaval and turmoil, And it's also what enables us to overcome the sin that lies within us. That enables us in this hope, in this peace, to serve God and obey him and not the desires of our sinful flesh. One other question then. When did Peter and John run to the tomb? We see who ran to the tomb, John and Peter. But in Luke, just Peter ran to the tomb. Forget about John. Okay, another question. When did they run to the tomb? John tells us that Peter and John went to the tomb. Why? Because Mary Magdalene came. And what did Mary say? They've taken his body away, and we don't know what they did with
1: him. In other words, John and Peter went to the tomb before they ever heard about angels
0: or angels telling them that Jesus rose from the dead. What does Luke do? Luke recounts Peter's visit to the tomb after the women, including Mary Magdalene, had announced to the disciples what they had heard from the angels. Okay. Now we'll see that in a second. We'll put it up on the screen. But, but before that, I also want to point something else out. In Luke, uh, Peter goes to the tomb after the women told him, hey, we, angels told us that Jesus is risen. Now, by the way, who else appeared to the women before then? Jesus. So the women, Luke, is telling us, okay, all right, here come the women. They're telling, angels appeared to us, telling Jesus is risen. Luke never tells us that they also saw Jesus.
1: (laughs) They actually saw Jesus too, right? Why doesn't Luke include that? It's very simple. Luke has an agenda. And Luke's agenda means that he is in your handout I don't know, if you figured that blank out yet? He's saving.
0: He is saving Jesus' first appearance in his gospel for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. There's a reason he's doing that. But Luke is saving the appearance for that. So no doubt, if the women had come back, they would have told him too about Jesus' resurrection. But because Luke hasn't included that, he leaves that out. He's saving that resurrection for the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So Luke chapter 24. When the women returned from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, Mary Magdalene, and we know that Mary Magdalene left earlier, but apparently now maybe they're gathered together again. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the rest of the women with them were there. They were telling these things to the apostles about the angels and all that they had told them. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they were not believing
1: them. But Peter stood up and ran to the tomb. Now, it could be that Peter ran to the tomb a second time. It seems unlikely
0: for various reasons. So that Luke recounts Peter's visit... After he recounts the announcement of the women does not necessarily mean that Peter's visit took place after the announcement of the women. Do you see that? Because someone's going to come to you maybe one day and they're going to say, look, Luke said it happened here. John said clearly it did not, it happened here. Contradiction in your Bibles. And that's false. In your hand, I don't know if this is in your handout, Luke inserts this detail at this spot And why does he insert it here? Well, number one, because it fits here very nicely. At a literary level, it just fits here. And therefore, it frees Luke from having to explain everything. If he had to put it in its right spot, he'd have to explain everything. He'd have to write John's Gospel. Luke is not writing John's Gospel. But Luke still is telling Peter's story, and he wants to put this
1: somewhere. So he puts it here where it fits very nicely.
0: Now, according to the modern conventions of our history textbooks, what has Luke just done? He's just contradicted John. Now, I think you can be very excited about this. You don't have to remember it all, so you can repeat it to the unbelieving person. But I I wanted to strengthen your faith. Luke contradicts John, according to our modern ideas. But the first century reader, if if you go back to the first century and you're someone reading this and you actually know the order of the events chronologically, you would not have seen Luke contradicting John. That's not the way you would have seen it. You wouldn't have seen him being misleading or deceptive. You would have understood Luke was using a literary device whereby you take a historical event that really happened, you, you insert it, you recount it out of sequence embedding it in this new location so that you can add this detail which is really important to you. And I'll just say this.
1: If the first century reader would not have seen Luke contradicting John, then neither should we. It's chronological snobbery. But more than that, let's take it the, let's take it the other way and say
0: this. Luke's out-of-sequence account when we see Luke putting this
1: somewhere else for his literary purpose, it's only further evidence of the fact of Peter's and John's visit to
0: the tomb and what they saw there. What I come away from is, well, Luke, he took it and put it here. Oh, I know why he did it. I see why he did it. But now when I see him doing that and I see John doing this and I see Mark doing this, I see, wow,
1: it happened. It happened. When Jesus appeared to the two disciples who were going to Emmaus, the two disciples related
0: what had happened that morning in the same order Luke did. Look at the order they give. But also some women among us astounded us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. And not finding his body, they came saying they had seen a vision of angels who
1: said he was alive. Okay. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also said, but him they did not
0: see. Now I'm going to skip over for right now all of my discussion of that. I'm going to leave it to you. Maybe you can figure out and think through
1: what might have happened there. We see then over and over again how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John
0: all have ordered their Accounts They have edited their history of the resurrection according to their own literary method. And at times, because they have a theological emphasis. Remember John? John said it was dark when they went to the tomb. Because John is emphasizing the darkness that had come over their minds and hearts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize the dawn. The sun had risen when they got there because they're emphasizing how the resurrection is about to dispel all the doubts and all the darkness that had crowded into their minds and hearts. So they're, they're seeking to do that. There's a difference. There's a reason. And so we also see how the independence of each one of these histories, the history that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John With all their apparent contradictions, which are not real, they only demonstrate all the more the sheer historical facticity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now we're going to come and do something here now, and I said earlier, it should be a big deal to us, it's significant, that in the Gospels and in all of the Bible, there is no other single historical event more carefully, more thoroughly documented by physical evidence, by eyewitness testimony, than the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, there is also no single day in biblical history that can be more thoroughly reconstructed than the day of Jesus' resurrection.
1: So what we're going to do now is I'm going to tell a story. It's a story that is not found in any
0: one of the four Gospels. So at a certain level, I'm going to tell the facts, the historical facts. I'm not going to be emphasizing the theological agenda. At the end, there's a sense in which you'll be glad then we didn't just get a history book. And yet you'll also, I pray, be reinforced in your faith that it is a history, no less historical than your history textbooks
1: of World War II or the Revolutionary War or any other event in human history. So in the darkness, and you can listen to the story or you can read along, but we know that while it was still dark, perhaps
0: it was just beginning to get light on the first day after the Sabbath, it was the first
1: day of the week, there was an earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled away the stone from the tomb. And he sat down on the stone, as if to say, it's done. The guards are terrified they fall to the ground like dead men. But at
0: some point, the angel, we know, was veiled again. The guards recovered their strength, their, their courage. And they got up because their job was to guard the tomb, and it would seem now they've failed by necessity.
1: They go to look in the tomb to see what there is to see, and they find that his body is gone.
0: They go back then into the city to report to the chief priests. Meanwhile, just before dawn, there are at least four women. We
1: know them by name. Mary from the village of Magdala, Joanna, Salome, and another Mary, the
0: mother of James, and perhaps some other women with them. They all set out for the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. But by the time they get there, It's not dark anymore. The sun has risen. This is real. The same sun that rose this morning rose then. And when they saw, though, that the stone was taken away from the tomb, the guards having already left, and the angel no longer there visibly, they assumed the enemies of Jesus had taken away his body. That's what happened. Mary Magdalene runs immediately to get help. She doesn't wait around. She runs to get help,
1: but the rest of the women stayed and even dared to go into the tomb. And suddenly, they saw that
0: there were two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been.
1: The angel stood up, and the one, the angel on the right spoke to the women, telling them not
0: to be afraid. But to go and bring word to the disciples, go tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. Well, the women, of course, they're filled with with joy. I can't even conceive of what, how am I processing this? So they're filled with joy, but they're also filled with fear. And they're so terrified that they flee from the tomb in terrified astonishment, and they're not able to say anything to anyone. While all that is happening, Mary, who has left the tomb, she, she finds Peter where he was staying first. Peter was staying by himself somewhere. She finds him, then she runs along with Peter. She probably tells him a bit. Then she runs and they go to find John. And she tells John and Peter what she has assumed. The angels have stolen away Jesus' body. Well, Peter and John then immediately set out to go to the tomb together, and they're running. It seems unlikely that they met the other women coming back from the tomb. But if they did meet them, the other women were still so terrified, they didn't say anything. In any case, both Peter and John are running. John runs faster than Peter, so he gets to the tomb first. Mary, maybe after collecting her strength, she follows Peter and John more slowly. When John gets to the tomb, he stoops down because of the entrance of the tomb being lower to the ground. He stoops down and he looks in and he sees the linen wrappings lying
1: there where the body had been. No angels, though. The angels are now once again veiled. So
0: they appeared to the guards, then they veiled, then they appeared to the women, then they were veiled. When Peter then catches up with John, who's still hanging back outside, he stoops too and he looks into the tomb. And then, and then Peter goes in and he sees not just the linen wrappings lying there, he also sees the face cloth
1: folded up in a place by itself. This is what happened. Then, then John finally gets up the courage to go
0: in too. And he saw, and as a result, he believed deep down, he said to himself, the only explanation for this empty tomb, the only explanation for linen wrappings still lying there and a face cloth folded up by
1: itself, the only explanation is the resurrection of Jesus. But see, he still didn't understand what it meant. He still didn't know the must. He saw it, and he
0: believed it, must have, it had happened, but he didn't know why it must have happened. So John and Peter both went back home. They went to where they were staying. Peter went back to his own place, wondering at what had happened. In the meantime, Mary Magdalene has arrived back at the tomb. Now, if she encountered Peter and John on her, on her way, then they didn't say anything to her about what they had concluded from the linen wrappings. Maybe she didn't encounter them. Maybe she got there. Maybe she missed them. Maybe she came too much later. But when Mary then, she had not been in the tomb yet, right? She had left before she even looked. She hasn't heard anything from the women. She hasn't heard anything from John and Peter. Now she gets to the tomb. And this time she goes to look into the tomb. And as we'll see next week, she's crying. And she sees, when she finally looks into the tomb, two angels. One of them is sitting at the head. One of them is sitting at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying.
1: The angels asked her why she was crying. Then Mary turned around, and we'll come to this again next week, and she saw a man standing there. At first, she didn't know it was Jesus. But then Jesus made himself known to her. We know how he did. He said her name, Mary. And then he gave her a message to
0: take back to the disciples. So here again, we have saying, go tell the disciples. Mary immediately, she goes to find the disciples, to tell them she's seen the Lord and what he had said to her. And while Mary is going to find the disciples, Jesus leaves Mary, she's on her way, and Jesus now goes and he himself appears to the other women who had gone back from the tomb and were still trembling with fear. They're still speechless and paralyzed with fright and don't know what to do and can't say anything to anyone, even though the angels told them, go bring the good news to the disciples. So now Jesus himself goes to those women and he appears to them.
1: And he repeats to them the message that the angels gave them, almost word for word. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But go and bring the news of the resurrection that I am risen to the disciples. There's a point at which we might be wondering, Jesus, why not just go to them? Why, not, why keep telling everyone else to go tell them? Appear to them, right? Well, there's several reasons
0: why this might be. But we'll look at one. After now two angelic visitations, the angels have appeared to Mary, Mary Magdalene. Then they've also appeared to the rest of the women. And also, uh, two appearances of Jesus himself. Probably it was the news of Mary Magdalene and the other women that caused the disciples to be all gathered together again. Because they were all scattered, right? Jesus said the sheep will be scattered. Now, here come Mary Magdalene. You can imagine her running around from place to place, gathering, finding. Now, she doesn't even know that the other women, what they've seen, what they've heard. And yet, they're also gathering up, finding. And you can imagine the the excitement and the buzz and the wondering and the confusion and what is happening. Now, they're all gathered together again after being scattered with this... News from the women. Now, Peter and John, they had also gone back home, right? So they probably had to be gathered up again. And they would have been able to confirm the empty tomb. Well, yes, it it was empty. But they would not have been able to confirm the angels or any appearances of Jesus. They had not seen that. So maybe deep down, when they hear these reports from the women, they believed them, but they couldn't give their own eyewitness testimony. And since they still didn't understand what a
1: resurrection meant, what, what does this resurrection mean? They were reserved. They were hesitant. In any case, the women's words appeared to the rest of the
0: disciples as nonsense. And they didn't believe them. Maybe they thought the women were emotionally, so emotionally distressed that they were imagining things. You shouldn't make them into male chauvinists just because they were at a wrong idea here. And they might have had some wrong ideas. But at the end of the day, you can't blame someone for seeing, being so emotionally distressed that they begin imagining things. right? Or they're seeing things. Maybe someone was playing a cruel trick on the women. I don't know what they assumed. But after a time, they've heard from the women. It's probably now late morning. At least some of the disciples dispersed again. The group did not stay together entirely. So some of them go off. Peter goes off by himself, we know. Did he go back to the tomb? Did he find some other place to be alone?
1: Wherever it was that Peter went, Jesus found him there. And after whatever it was that passed between them, Peter went back to the disciples with the news that he too had now seen
0: the risen Lord. So now the disciples have three separate reports.
1: With Peter's independent confirmation, of the independent reports of Mary Magdalene and the other women,
0: now the rest of the disciples are finally saying to themselves, okay, I got three different people telling me the same thing. Therefore, they believed, at least in a theoretical sense, Jesus must be risen from the dead.
1: Whatever that means, we don't know. Meanwhile, two of the disciples who had been there in the
0: morning Along with the rest of the disciples, when Mary Magdalene came and the other women came, we've seen, we've heard the reports from the angels, we've seen Jesus, he's risen. Well, two of the disciples who had been there had left. Maybe about the same time Peter left. And there, they are, um, Cleopas and his companion, they set out for this village of Emmaus, seven miles away from Jerusalem. And while they're on their way to Emmaus, um, Jesus comes to them. And he's walking along with them on the road and he's talking with them. Now they didn't recognize Jesus at first, but they recognized him eventually when they arrived all the way, seven miles away in Emmaus. They sit down to eat a meal together and Jesus breaks the bread and their eyes were open, and they realize this is Jesus. We're going to talk about why people don't recognize Jesus next week. When they arrived again, of course, they set out right away to go back to Jerusalem to bring the news that we have seen the Lord. They arrive that evening, and they find all the disciples gathered together yet again. And they are greeted when they get there, because they're going to say, no, we've seen the Lord. Apparently, Mary Magdalene was right, and the women were right. When they get back, they're met by the disciples with this news. Jesus has really risen and has appeared to Peter. And then they, in turn, are relating to the rest of the disciples their own experience on the road and how they had finally recognized Jesus when he broke bread with them.
1: There are now four independent testimonies of someone seeing the risen Jesus. The testimony
0: of Mary Magdalene, the testimony of the other Mary and Salome and Joanna,
1: the testimony of peter and the testimony of cleopas and his companion it's only then after these four prior
0: appearances while all the disciples are now gathered together discussing these things it's like you know you'd be in the room that day and and all of them everyone who had seen or heard anything and all the rest now are all gathered together they're all discussing this what does this mean How can it be? It's only then
1: that now, finally, Jesus comes and stands in their midst. And what happened then? (laughs) They said, oh, there he is. No. Even then they thought at first they were seeing a spirit. That's history. And after gently rebuking them, Jesus showed them his hands and he showed them his feet to prove that he had both flesh and bones. Even then,
0: they were not believing because of, and you know, sometimes you have the, I can't believe because I'm so joyful, it's too good to be true, right? It's so good, I can't believe it. They were not believing, it says, because of their joy and astonishment. So what did Jesus
1: do next? Jesus said, do you have any food here? And they said, yeah, we have some broiled fish. Give it to me. And so then Jesus says, look, I can eat food. I I eat fish. And then, here's the thing. All we have here is the history that it has happened. See, they all said, oh, it has happened. But what's happened? Just someone
0: randomly alive again? No, then, then Jesus spoke to them, even as he spoke to the new disciples, two disciples on the road to Emmaus,
1: and he opened their minds. To understand from the scriptures that he must rise from the dead and that repentance for
0: forgiveness of sins. See, is that theology? Is that spiritual truth, brothers and sisters, that our sins can be forgiven? That we who have merited God's judgments can be pardoned and have life eternal and everlasting. Yes, that is theology. And what is that theology rooted in? It's rooted in a man who can eat fish. It's rooted in a man who shows us his hands and his feet. Who
1: was dead but now is alive. Who was laid in the tomb. And yet the tomb is now empty. He must rise from the dead,
0: and now forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Why did Jesus make four separate appearances
1: before he appeared to all the disciples altogether? Well, I can guess
0: some answers with Peter, but why the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? That seems kind of random. Maybe the women was, partly was, maybe there was something unique and special there. Maybe he was seeking to show that some of the views of, of women were wrong and was trying to correct some of that. I don't know, but I know this.
1: There were four separate appearances because it's a historical fact. So that, in other words, so that we, there
0: would be no question that this was some mass hallucination. You know that, that, that's a psychological reality, right? You can have the mass group and they all just feed off each other and somehow they're all seeing eventually the same thing. It's, it's
1: something that can happen. Is there evidence of mass hallucination in the Gospels? Certainly not. So what I want us to see is that the whole sequence of events that I just
0: constructed from the four Gospel narratives this whole sequence of events on that first day of the week as we have pieced it together from the four gospel accounts including all the various emotions and the various responses of the disciples. Like if the disciples had immediately believed the women, I might be suspicious. These are credulous guys, right? They immediately believed men who came back and told them. It's not not just that Peter said it. It's that Peter said it after Mary Magdalene said it and the women said it. So, So this all then proves. It is powerful testimony. In fact, in your handout, it proves. And what is that? I'm going to say
1: far beyond, far beyond all reasonable doubt. The historical fact. Of an empty tomb. And that that empty tomb. Can only be explained. By the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. To say again what we said at the beginning. Yes. Saving
0: faith is only possible. See you you don't believe if you simply believe a fact. I don't believe if I just believe a fact. I have to believe the must. The
1: why. What it means. And yet, brothers and sisters, if the fact isn't a fact,
0: then your faith is vain. And my faith is vain. We are of all people most miserable.
1: There is no hope. Since the fact is a fact, our faith will never be put to shame. We will never be put to shame. This morning, then, Well, saving faith is only possible when we understand the must of the resurrection. But this saving faith always presupposes there is evidence to believe that the resurrection which we know must happen has happened. Then let us, therefore, this morning, let us rejoice with, with an unquenchable joy that the resurrection which must happen has happened. And then what do we do with that? I mean, how does that not then like supercharge us? Not in some
0: emotional mountaintop kind of a way, but in this deep abiding way, this
1: supercharge us as it were. To serve and to obey this Jesus who is risen. And this Jesus with whom we have now been united by faith.
0: Okay. When I talk about being united with Jesus by faith, that's a theological reality, right? That's not something physical, tangible, I can touch and feel and physically verify. But my my being united
1: with the risen Jesus by faith is rooted in that historically tangible evidence that he's no longer in the tomb. Finally then, may we be all the more
0: equipped this morning to confront brothers and sisters, not with arrogance,
1: but with boldness. And not not in fear, but with joy. The false teaching of an unbelieving church. As well as the skepticism. And at times even the mockery. Of an unbelieving world. Dear Heavenly Father. Lord
0: I. I pray. My longing this morning. Is that this church. That your people.
1: Are. 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 Are, are rejoicing. That we are So. That in our joy, we are equipped to face all the assaults and the attacks of of a world full of skeptics and unbelievers, even at times of a church that would teach that Jesus did not bodily rise, but spiritually
0: and theologically is risen, but but not bodily. Lord, help us to cling to this truth, not simply as conservatives, not simply as, as, as it were, the, the Bible-thumping people, but Lord, as people who have comprehended and grasped the necessity of the bodily resurrection. That it must have happened in history if we are to have any reason for the things we believe about forgiveness, about an inheritance now stored up for us in heaven, And which we will one day enter into when we too
1: are raised bodily from the dead. So that even as Jesus is the first fruits, we will follow in our own order. We thank you that, that it is the real fact of history that points us to the real fact of what is to come. Lord, I pray for our young people that we would not
0: be led astray by false teachings and doctrines and precepts of men.
1: Father, I pray that that you would guard us and protect us. And again, that you would bring us not simply to,
0: to a place where we have our all our ducks in a row and, and we sit on them and we are proud that we know it. But Lord, that, that you would cause us to come to an ever deeper commitment, an ever deeper love for the truths that we confess. And certainly not least of all, in fact, at some level, the one that summarizes all the rest,
1: the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us live in these things today, this week, and always until we see the risen Lord the one who ate fish, who showed the disciples his hands and feet. And we rejoice in his presence forever and ever and ever. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.